0: Hi, I'm Ali from Shanghai Chan. If you like our show, why not support it with a small donation? Become a Shanghai patron by donating as little as $5 a month, and you will get a cool Shanghai branded sticker. For $10, you get one of our amazing Shanghai coffee mugs. Just go to patreon.com/shanghaichan to sign up. That's patreon. p a slash Shanghai John. Thanks for your support
1: Welcome to Shanghai John a raw and lively regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing. We'll also be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts. You can learn more about Shanghai, John, at our website, johnstation.com. Coming to you directly from the city of Shanghai, I'm Bryce Wittwan.
0: And I'm Ali Kazmi.
1: In today's episode, we're talking about the China media landscape in transition. We know that constant change epitomizes the China media landscape. And ever since we've come here in the early 2000s, we've seen major evolutionary shifts, including the move to digital, mobile, and e-commerce. In the old days, media planners would pour over competitor share of voice data, selecting optimum day parts in a television plan that would maximize a brand's tarps or target rating points. Then media agencies would fly to Beijing to pay homage to the great CCTV who controlled whether your brand would ever get noticed. Nowadays, media platforms are linked to the big platforms like Alibaba and Tencent. Consumer segment profiles are carefully selected to match your brand's profile. And ad messages magically reach your desired audience. Nowadays, it's all done automatically. So what's the future of the China media industry? To discuss this, we are joined by two media industry experts. First, Doug Pierce is the former chairman and Greater China Group CEO at Omnicom Media Group and has lived in China for over 20 years and is considered one of the most senior and respected agency leaders in the industry. Doug left OMG in 2018 to follow his entrepreneurial roots to launch a tech-driven ad tech startup founding the Ducan Network, which is bringing programmatic digital technology to outdoor screens. In addition, Doug now consults for several agencies. We are also joined by Jun Yuan He is the CEO and founder of cross-border digital marketing consulting firm SparkX. His company offers both inbound media services into China, as well as helping local brands expand globally with outbound services. He's been in the media business for the past 15 years, including heading up OMG's programmatic division from 2013 to 2017 when he worked with Doug. June, Doug, welcome to Shanghai Zhan.
2: Thanks, guys. Hey, hey,
1: guys. Happy to be here. And before we get started, we'd like to remind everyone that if you like this show, please help us by giving us a five-star review on your favorite platform. Apple Podcasts or Spotify both have places to leave favorable reviews. Yes, it helps a lot. Thank you. So let's introduce each other first. You, Doug, you've been in China for the past 20 years. How did you get here and... This is kind of hard to do, but could you introduce yourself and how you know Jun?
2: Sure. Uh, I came to uh, Shanghai in uh, 2000, so uh, about 20, 21 years ago, and uh, came with Leo Burnett uh, to, be, to be the MD of Leo Burnett in uh, Shanghai. I was a media guy for most of my career, but I really wanted to run the agency so I switched to account service. Was GM in uh, the Melbourne office of Leo Burnett, and this opportunity came up to uh, to run an agency uh, in Shanghai. And so I leapt at that. That was my first uh, office head, starting here for uh, in two thousand, as I said, and uh, lasted for a couple of years. When I went back to uh, to Melbourne to run Starcom, Starcom in Melbourne, which of course was owned by Leo Burnett. I was there very little time and then got offered a role to come back to be the Starcom CEO of Greater China and I I never really wanted to leave China so I leapt at that opportunity, came back uh, and then in 2007 I took a very different path and moved to Accenture running their media management business across Greater China until being recalled to the uh, agency world in 2011 to go to OMG running OMD PhD, and then uh, Nim Digital, and you know I've had a fortunate career in in China, and uh, I think I'm probably the only guy that can say they run a creative direct, creative agency rather, a media agency plus a consulting business. So I've had a pretty good broad, you know, view of the, the landscape, and then more lately doing um, a startup in outdoor ad tech. How do I meet Jun? Well. Jun was recruited by Arlene Ang to join Omnicom Media Group. It's pretty interesting because we're talking about transition in media, but in 2011 when I joined OMG, we actually didn't do any digital work. We used to outsource it to a company called All Yes, uh, and Group M used to do the same, and they used to outsource to uh, Highlink. So we really had to build our... Digital capability from scratch, and when you think back on that, sort of 2011, only 11 years ago, we weren't doing any digital work. And look at now, what what the agencies are doing. Jun came on board to run our programmatic buying division, which was called Acquan. He he was a real rock star. He he quickly built that business. We were number one in China in the very early days of of, of programmatic business. Uh, he was a great team leader. He recruited great people. And uh, I can recall around 2, 15, 2, 16, we had we had 40-plus people. Yeah, we were growing so fast. Uh, and, you know, Jun always stood out as a team leader, passionate about the work, great all-rounder. And um, he could really build a culture. And that's what he did for us. June, was that fairly
1: accurate in terms of your relationship with Doug? Is there anything that you can add? Maybe more importantly, tell us about your company.
3: Thanks, Doug, for the great introduction and all the good things he he mentioned. I I would just take it as compliments. (laughs) Yeah, I really appreciate. Yeah, maybe I could, could talk a little bit more about myself. Since my first day in my career, I always know, from day one that I, I cannot be a corporate person. I know I can survive in a corporate world, but I don't really enjoy it, uh, being in a corporate world because all the like corporate protocols and red tapes and a little bit like bureaucracy. So I always wanted to get out and start my own business. And after a few years working in like different cities, like Singapore, Hong Kong and Shanghai, and especially a few years in New York, um, I think the timing was right back in 2018. And, and myself, I was mentoring, uh, and, and experience-wise, I think I was ready. So I came back to, to, um, to Shanghai and, and started SparkX. Doc was my boss's boss when I worked for Omnicom, which was also my first agency job. I got hired by Arlene, and Arlene was my di- direct boss, and she was the Omnicom digital CEO. And after working worked together with Arlene for like one year, and Arlene, I remember Arlene got promoted as the OMG CEO. So I was lucky enough to report to Doug directly. And yeah, Doug was very, very kind. And he, because he was like the big boss, right? So he had a very busy schedule. We spent every Monday morning together. Uh, we had coffee together for around like three years, as I can remember, from 2013 to 2016. I'm just being very grateful for other... These terms and the knowledge that uh, Doug shared with me and all the guidance he provided and he always inspired me to go after my dreams and uh, I really appreciate that Doug has been so patient and I, I'm very grateful with um, his time as well.
1: Tell us about SparkX and what prompted you to found this company? What things do you think that traditional media agencies advertising agencies were not doing that SparkX could do? What's the gap or the problem that you're trying to solve? What's the gap you're trying to fill?
3: I have been in the media business for quite a few years, from from Shanghai to, to the Western world. I saw there are great opportunities from two different dimensions. There are like outbound opportunities and inbound opportunities. So from the outbound perspective, we see that more and more China advertisers that are actually spending a lot of money. International media uh, like Facebook and Google. there were a few traditional China agencies providing some sort of business services to the China advertisers. But this kind of traditional China agencies may basically operating on the brokers model, right? So their business is a is a cash flow business. They, they're actually banked by another name. What they do for the advertisers and what is their value to the market is they provide like better payment terms. They give one month payment term or up to like three to half a year payment terms due to the large advertisers. And, and also they got rebate uh, from, the, from the publishers. And their own margin is from the discrepancy between what they're getting from the publishers and what they gave out to the advertisers. So, so it's a quite straightforward business model, basically now investing in tech. And also um, based um, from my own observation, we're saying there's a huge gap between the U.S. market and China outbound advertising market. So in in the U.S. market, a lot of advertisers may use a combination of different uh, uh, tech solutions, also different business uh, publishers. But for the China outbound part, we see pretty much every single advertiser they just spend money on Facebook and Google. Although Facebook and Google and publishers like Amazon they are pretty big, but they are only like 50% of the media spend for, for the for the Western market. So still there are another 50% of the of the media coverage and data coverage are not being utilized by the China advertisers. So there's a huge gap there. And also the utilization of the tax solutions is quite rare for the for the China advertisers uh, back to three years ago. So we say there's a huge knowledge gap and the knowledge gap is is at least around next like three to five years time. That's why I was thinking. Uh, there probably uh, there's a great opportunity for me to come back to China to help the China advertisers to run their global campaigns in a more sophisticated way and really compete with the other like global advertisers at the same level. That's why I came back to start um, Sparkx, focus on the outbound business. But the other part is inbound, right? Other like international advertisers they understand there's a huge potential for China but they have difficulties to get into China because they don't really understand the media ecosystem of China, right? If you're not large enough, you can't really work with the big agencies. You're too small for them. But if you go to the small agencies, you you would have like language barrier. You can't really communicate with them. So it's very hard for a lot of international brands to come into the China market. Uh, That's why uh, at the very beginning of the business, we also provide uh, inbound services for a lot of international clients who wants to expand their business uh, domestically in China.
1: And how would you characterize outbound Chinese clients? I mean, of course, we know know about the big brands. We know about Xi'an. We know about Huawei. Uh, we know about Vivo and Oppo and these kind of big brands. Do these brands characterize SparkX's business for outbound services or Is there a smaller, more niche group of customers that you work with that are looking to expand abroad?
3: I think we work with different type of clients. So the clients you just mentioned, like Shein, like Huawei, uh, also like Popmart, they're like on the top level. They're like uh, the most sophisticated clients. They know what they they want to do and they have a very comprehensive branding strategy. So they allocate their budget, uh, media, media campaign budget, between uh, branding campaigns and performance campaigns, right? But they are on the very top. So I don't think that many Chinese uh, China outbound brands are as sophisticated as as Xing Xi or as Huawei. But most of the China brands they're still SM based. So if we work with based, what they really care about is their is ROI, is return from from their media investment. So we dedicated to help the SMBs to drive better ROI through their media spend. So we help them to optimize their Amazon campaigns. We also help them to run their Facebook and Google campaigns by combining the third-party data and also leverage uh, whatever capabilities you can get from the marketing cloud to help help them to drive their media performance to, to the next level. So there's a little bit difference between uh, the top-level uh, sophisticated clients and, and the middle-level SMBs.
1: At the introduction, I mentioned that this massive change in terms of the roles of media agencies. Where do you see media agencies evolving to? If everything is going to be programmatic, if all the algorithms that are able to target specific customers at particular times of their consumer buying journey, uh, if this is all automated, Where do you see the media agency's role in this buying process?
2: Well, what we're really talking about here is exactly what you just said, the media buying process. So the media world has always been a strategy, planning, uh, you know, some content now and then buying. And I think it's the buying that's going to change pretty significantly over the coming years. And uh, that could be a good thing for the agencies because, You know, so much business these days is one on pricing commitments. And if you can take those sort of pricing commitments and give that to a specialist buying team or division, you know, the agencies can get on and probably bring better value to the clients in terms of strategy and insights and content and things like that. So that could be good. But look, I definitely see that we're going to see two worlds we refer to it as inside outside buying or outside inside buying where you're going to have big market outside China of Facebook, Amazon, Google, and then inside China, of course, you've got the big three here as well, which as Jun said, you know, controls a huge amount of spend. For Chinese clients wanting to go abroad, they can use companies like Jun's and for companies wanting to come into China or really maximise the China media environment, they can also use a company like Jun's, inbound, outbound, but China has a completely different infrastructure. So the importance for agencies having China capability, technology and scale to deal with the, the big three, the often called walled gardens, it's so important. And that'll be the buying race. I also suspect that eventually clients will, global clients will say, you know what, We'll do all of the media buying for the big US platforms in one location, which, say, in the case of L'Oreal, could be we're going to do all of our buying out of France, potentially in-house, because, uh, as you said, right at the front, it's all becoming automated. But they'll need a China solution. So that's going to provide a lot of opportunities for agencies in China to be that China solution because you can't do both markets with the one technology. You have to have a China you know, solution for that. So inside outbound marketing, I think is going to be big.
0: But Doug, do you think that um, advertisers in this market might consider in-housing their media in this market?
2: Uh, Look, I think that's something that will eventually be on the cards for sure.
0: Yeah. And the technology really
2: enables people to do that. Ali, there'll be a bit of a separation back to, you know, media planning strategy done by perhaps an agency and then the buying either done by another agency, the same agency, or even in-housing. You know, I can see that the split. You know, they used to split media planning and buying all the time, came together, um, and I suspect that might go back. You know, the volume and the, and the revenue in the buying is actually not that great. You know, the, the skill set of the people that really can make a difference to a media strategy or some media ideation or innovation is in the planning side.
3: I think there's another fundamental difference between China and the US is that in China it's, it's a seller's market, and in the in the Western market is is a buyer's market. So, which means in China the the sellers, like uh, publishers, they have more influence than, than over over the buyers. But in the Western market, uh, if I'm like an advertiser, I can I can push the publishers to to make changes to to involve in a way I want you guys to evolve. That's why you're saying in the Western market, a lot of new MarTech or ad tech, tech technologies are actually being pushed through the advertisers. From the other perspective is that in China, other inventory and, and data are owned by the publisher themselves, uh, as well as the tech stack. But in the Western world, data and, and, and media inventory are exchangeable. So data are being exchanged through data exchange and, their, and inventory are being exchanged from ad exchanges. So when you when you buy media in the Western world, you actually buy three different components. You're buying inventory, uh, you're buying data, and, and you're buying tax uh, tech solutions. So you're, you 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 basically are paying three different areas of your of your ad spend. That's fundamentally uh, decide um, the evolution between the China ad tech or martech ecosystem as well as the Western market ad ad tech system. Back to the China and the US comparison. I think uh, what what is interesting in China because um, nothing has has could be changed from 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 day one. So a lot of advertisers in China they have been focusing on first party data management. That's why we're saying uh, some companies in China they help um, the advertisers to to build up their in in house like CDP uh, consumer data platform, right? And to do a lot of a customized tech solutions to to help the advertisers to really amplify their first-party data in their big publishers' ecosystem. And in the U.S., they also have some sort of similar CDB platform, but they provide the platform as a standard solution. But in China, all the solutions are customized. That's why we're seeing a lot of China companies, tech companies, it seems like they have a lot of advertisers, but they couldn't make money. They They couldn't run their business as a profitable business because... They, for every single client, they have to customize their solutions, which means it needs to have a lot of engineers, and they have, have a lot of development work for, for different advertisers or, or for different clients. But in the U.S. market, we, we have they have like one standard solution, which can be used by different clients. So the utilization of the solution is totally higher efficiency level. That's, that's why we're saying that the U.S. market the market companies are, are evolving better and better. But in China, the market companies are always suffering. But China has been focusing on the first-party data. I think this is somehow all the U.S., um, the West tech companies are moving towards that direction as well, because we're seeing of companies like Facebook, like Google, they're being more and more conscious about um, the data privacy. So China is probably a little bit more advanced than the Western market from. From that first-party data management management um, standpoint.
0: On data management, how is China more advanced? Um, it's
3: it's like China because um, in China, um, when you have your first-party data, right? So your your first-party data, and you try to activate your data in the in, in the Alibaba he, uh, ecosystem. Uh, you could directly leverage your data and. And transfer that data capability into into your actual business results. You know, in the U.S. market, I think they're like gradually evolving into the same direction as China has been doing for for the past few years. So, from the data utilization and segmentation and how that link directly to the to the e-commerce conversions, I think China is probably a little bit advanced, and then. Uh, from that perspective than the Western market.
0: That's interesting because, you know, there's a number of companies that operate on, on the Google marketing platform and they actually benefit a lot by using customer data. Uh, I'm slightly torn as well. I just think back maybe 10 years or 15 years, there's never really been an interest in advertisers in this market to collect first party data or collect customer records. To a big extent, that's always been because, you know, it was always a lot cheaper to target consumers on on the big three or the big four platforms uh, in China. And D2C model, I would have imagined that, you know, it's always been a lot more mature in, in the US or, or in Europe where brands have built out their own storefronts and they direct consumers there. So it's interesting that you say that there's a lot greater sophistication in China. And I guess that's where the question is coming from, is that while well, you have all of this first party data, you have all these customer records in the US, and yet China's actually got a much more advanced, I guess, data utilization in the way they make use of data, whether it's, it's on the Ali ecosystem, or it's something that they've, or it's investments, or they've, you know, they've been collecting data on their own. So that's a really interesting point. Let's go back to the influencer question. it has been a number of investments that have been made um, that we see as well that are being focused entirely on influencers and influencers, especially within fashion and beauty that, you know, incrementally they account for maybe 30, 40% of total budgets. Um, and for smaller brands, it's always a lot more difficult to go all in and, and spend on display or programmatic media. Is there opportunity in also applying some type of technology or, uh, or applying tech and programmatic and, and, and creating sort of and algorithms to uh, the world of influence as well? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And how do you see that affecting the inbound, outbound?
3: I, I can talk about outbound part because um, I'm, I'm not really doing much about the inbound uh, influence part. My experience with the album part is that the media price of Facebook and Google is getting higher and higher, even the same like Amazon, right? So uh, if we talk about uh, five years ago or 10 years ago, when, when people in China just started selling their products on Facebook and Google, they got a lot of uh, benefits from the cheap inventory provided by Google and Facebook. And also the production cost is very cheap as well. It's really easy for um, album advertisers or sellers make a, a lot of money to the media uh, platforms. So they, they use Facebook and Google, the same as Amazon, as a, as a sales channel. They don't see them as an advertising channel. So what we're seeing now is that the media price of Google and Facebook is getting uh, higher and higher because of the more in, intense competition and uh, they're more sellers as well. And Google and Facebook are, are, are intentionally lift up their media price. That's why uh, we're seeing a shift uh, of the media, media spend from two directions. One direction is is uh, the shift of the media spend to influence marketing, and the other one is uh, the shift to to marketing automation based on the first party data. That's why we're seeing more and more influencer marketing tech companies are emerging in the Western market. The, the same as the China advertisers that they, they started using this kind of platforms, because uh, traditionally. There are some kind of influence and marketing platforms. They, they match uh, the advertisers and the influencers. But that is meaning being used by the big agencies uh, as well as the big clients. Clients like Unilever, clients like P&G, they run pure like uh, uh, perform uh, branding campaigns. But the new generation, the next generation of influence marketing platform, they focus on the SMBs. So they are more agile. They, they are more data driven. They, they really trying to, to match the, the best between uh, the advertisers as well as the influencers so as an influencer you can you can post your your samples and all your video previous uh, work with uh, with some other brands for the advertisers to choose and as, a, as an advertiser you can really just post on your products and, and other reviews and functions uh, that demo mm-hmm. video on, on, the, on, the, on the website for for the influencers to was to, to to work with. So it's like a mapping pro- process platform for for the influencers and uh, as well as the advertisers. We're seeing one and more these kind of platforms are are, are starting uh, getting attention in in emerging in the, in the western market.
2: I, I think for China, KOLs are always going to be a sort of market of their own. You know many of them take share of sales, share of revenue you know, demand pricing, uh, lowest possible pricing for their products. But KOCs is a different matter, key opinion consumers. There's some companies in the space who are doing some really interesting things with with technology and platforms. One that I know, uh, Viral Access, have a platform of, I think it's about half a million KOCs that they can access, uh, bring together very quickly to do campaigns. And I actually think KOCs is a bigger part of the future than perhaps KOLs. For, for many luxury and skincare, KOLs are always going to be important. But just as a general communication trend, I think getting people to make their own content and then share it on their platforms like KOCs is a really good way of getting the uh, the advertising message out. And there are companies with technology, with platforms, using AIs to know who's getting results and followers and likes and um, that sort of thing. So that that's important. But again, it's a China infrastructure. Jun said that this KOL, KOCs is starting to catch on in the West, but in China, it's, it's its own platform. So you're going to need to have capability in that and technology in that area to really make your brand stand out a bit more in, in the media marketplace. We
1: talked about that in a previous podcast about how China will become this seller's economy where maybe in a future world, KOCs will not just be promoting your products, but actually selling them. You think about even now during the lockdown and how people have started in the communities basically to survive and buy food, which is, which is foundational in the Maslow hierarchy of needs. They've created platforms and apps to manage the distribution of food within the compound. Doug, is there a possibility that KOCs could evolve to not only promotion, but also selling of the products as well?
2: The Chinese are very good at monetizing any opportunity that, that comes around. You talked about the community buying in the lockdown here. That, you know, new businesses have have sprung up and that's exactly what they're doing. And they, you can link to, um, you know, various sales mechanisms for the KOCs to, to take a share of the action and they're selling. Yeah, I think so too. June, I was wondering
1: how when you're working with a lot of outbound chinese companies i had an experience in my past life where we had a client it was outbound on amazon a brand called sun valley they make uh headphones and electronics products their main brand is called taotronics definitely a player within the top 20 players of headphones in amazon uh based out of shenzhen and what i found generally and maybe this comes from a creative agency's perspective. They were very ROI driven. They didn't really have the ability to create a brand. And what we found out was that despite the fact that their headphones quality was excellent, their Bluetooth headset could compete easily with Bose. But they're charging 50 bucks, whereas Bose was charging 300. And that's the part what we told them that there's the gap is between 50 and $300 is that you need to build a brand. And if we looked at their communications on Amazon, it was all Getty images. It was all people on a beach. They didn't really invest in brand building and, and that kind of communications because they're all a bunch of tech guys and all they wanted to do was drive sales. Is there an opportunity for Chinese brands outbound to upsell and and start to be more brand focused? Or is it still very much a low cost transactional engagement with outbound customers?
3: That's actually a very interesting question. I think the China uh, outbound business, or um, specifically about e-commerce, is going through a very important transition stage. Most of the China brands may want to evolve into a brand, not, not just um, selling products. Because of two particular reasons, uh, Amazon has been very strict about the fraud reviews. Some other like dodgy tricks um, that, that uh, Amazon sellers, China sellers, has been has been used, and they, they just uh, shut down their store. They they can't even get their money back from from Amazon. So a lot of advertisers, uh, sellers in China, um, they got hit very seriously um, by Amazon last year. So. It's kind of like all of a sudden, when they have been run built up for the past few years, it's all gone. Uh, but what we're saying is, uh, although a lot of uh, sellers, they want to evolve their business into more like a branding-driven business, but it fundamentally requires a mindset change. So even brands like TouchHotix, right? Um, they're they're large enough to, to be a brand. They totally have the supply chain capabilities to. To compete with uh, any of the global brand um, because they literally uh, work, work with the same supply chain they, they got um, the same product from the same manufacturer so from that point of, of view they have the other like basic uh, uh, basic foundations to compete with uh, the global brands they don't have the sophisticated mindset for them to be brave enough to invest the money in, in branding
2: you've always got to build the brand and get some awareness for that if you Otherwise, you tend to just be selling on price. We all know that's not a strategy you can win with in China. So, you know, you really do need to do some branding work uh, if you want to have a sustainable business. Really, it's never been easier to do that in China than, than what it is now. Bryce, you, you'll recall, you know, in the days of CCTV and Shanghai TV and Beijing TV, if someone didn't have, I don't know, 20 million US dollars you'd kind of say, well, why don't you just stick it in the bank or take it down in Macau and put it on the red because you needed to have a deep pocket to survive. And there were so many markets, so many TV markets and challenges. But now you can selectively pick off an audience, a market, a category, do some work on e-commerce platforms and sell the product pretty easily without that huge investment that it used to be. I was talking to the best buy people. It must have been 15 years ago who, you know, left China in after about a year and a half, they just didn't have the money and the strength to really to withstand it. You don't need to have that anymore. You can come and be very targeted, pick your audience, pick your product and target the marketing at a lower price but more effective, lower price um, but, you know, more targeted. So the actual the media costs you a little bit more on a CPM basis but it's highly targeted. So I still think there's opportunities for that. But I do, I I look at the market now and I guess I've been out of the main agency world for a couple of years and I'm kind of shocked a little bit by the focus on performance, marketing and getting a result tomorrow rather than building a brand for the long haul. But that's a whole other discussion, of course.
1: Well, I think we better answer the question, which is our topic today. And what is the future of the media agency? Doug, June, what's the future like?
2: There always will be a future for a media agency, but it will morph. And agencies are very good at morphing into, you know, new areas. Sometimes they may not have the capability, but they can quickly get the capability and and make it sound like they have it. So, look, I I think the media world is still viable. Um, it's obviously not as attractive to to younger talent, so. Therefore, you know the leaders of the business need to be a bit, I would imagine, tougher, and and firm on what clients they take and what revenue they accept, and and more so how they're treated by their clients. And um, I keep going back to three things that uh, I think it was John Burnback of DDB said: the reason you take on a piece of business is fame, fortune, or fun, the three Fs. And I think when you don't have two of those, you get into a bit of a problem. But there's always going to be a future for media agencies, but I think it will look different to what it is today. And it looked very different today than what it did 11 years ago when I joined OMG when we were spending 85, 90 percent of our money on TV. I,
3: I see media agency is more like um, a pusher filter for the clients because as a media agency, you actually have the luxury and you you have the visibility of the entire marketplace, right? So you can you can audit in, you can audit every single solutions or every single publishers available in the market. I think the main value for the, for the for the media agency or for the agencies is to direct your clients to the best of technology that is available in the market. I think that is um, the real value of the media agency. I think that would be uh, how um, the media agency would keep um, growing as well in, in the market.
2: I think the challenge for agencies has been this legacy business that they've inherited. So you're seeing startups like Jun's and other companies, and there's quite a few that are now have you know three, four hundred people that are sometimes bigger than you know the traditional agencies, and they've started because they they've done well because they don't have any legacy business. They start right at the now, and today's need and today's future need. Whereas the agencies, in some cases, are still doing a bit of what they've done before. You know, you've got a whole new generation of talent that want to get into the good stuff. Ready for the A-B test, Ali?
0: Absolutely. Let's do it. June, Doug, the A-B test is basically short for Ali and Bryce test. It's obviously known in the media business as something else. So we're going to start with you, Doug, and then maybe switch over to June and go on from there. Whatever response comes to mind first, feel free to shout out. So I'm going to start with the first one. In excess or Nirvana, Doug? Oh, in excess. Aussie band. Surfing or Snowboarding. Jun Snowboarding, definitely Export or import, Doug? Uh, export for me Shanghai or New York? New York Melbourne or Shenzhen, Doug?
2: Well, have to be Melbourne at this moment for sure, Melbourne, hometown
0: uh, Ducatis or Harleys, Jun?
3: I had a Ducati but I stole it so I'm going to get a Harleys uh,
0: Cats or dogs? Doug Dogs Straight or ice, Jun? For sure, rock, on the rock Excellent
1: Hey, guys, thanks for being on the show. June and Doug, it was excellent. Very fascinating.
2: Thanks for having me here. Uh, It's been great talking to you guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you,
1: everyone, for joining us on today's episode. Join us next week for another exciting show. And to all our listeners, until then, have a great day.